As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asking, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, 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 he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still didn't believe him, that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe and worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Hello. Good evening. Um, <clears throat> one thing I've noticed before anything is, I don't know whether you've missed, but I always seem to turn up to either this church or any events that I'm speaking at and wear something similar to the other person on stage. I don't know whether we're coordinating. Uh, it was uh, one time I spoke at Oasis Camp and I think Dave and I had exactly the same t-shirt on, which was not exactly the same one. Obviously, that'd be awkward, but um, a similar t-shirt. My name is Tom. Uh, I um, have... Well, I live just over the back of the park uh, in a house um, in one of the roads around there. I live in Shirley. I grew up in Solihull. My parents are sat on the fifth row back. Uh, I grew up in this church coming here, but I now attend Jubilee Church in Solihull, which meets above Loaf, which used to be Argos in the centre of Solihull. Um, I work for Youth for Christ in Kenilworth, where I help run the centre, do a lot of schools work, work with young people uh, almost every day, mentoring them, helping them to understand a little bit more about the Christian faith. And it's brilliant to be here this evening just to talk a bit about Jesus, really. And I love talking about Jesus. I'm just going to work out the best way to have this round. There we go. Um, so we're looking tonight at blind faith and what it is and whether Christians believe without evidence. Is Christianity irrational? And I love this topic because I get bombarded with this nearly every day when I go into school and talk to young people. So I kind of feel like it's something that I, I'm excited about talking about. Um, and I wonder if I was to blindfold somebody and bring them up. I debated doing it, and I remember I wasn't in a classroom, uh, and asked them to smell different products, different things that I got with, them, with me. You'd probably be able to tell exactly what I got in my pot. Unless you had no sense of smell, of course, and then we've you know, I've chosen somebody who it wouldn't work with. But Marmite, um, tuna, that kind of thing, you'd probably be able to smell it instantly, but you wouldn't be able to see it, but you'd know what it was. Um, likewise, I think you, you, we kind of understand that the wind is there, uh, but we don't see the wind. I know that gravity is holding me on this stage, but I don't see gravity but I can sense it and I know the effects of it. The effects of Marmite being smelt would cause an extreme reaction one way or the other, I have no doubt. Some people would turn their nose up, some people would, um, like me, probably want to get a spoon and put it in. Um, but people say it's really difficult to believe in God as you can't see him, you can't touch him, you can't feel him, you can't say, here he is, I've got him, now I show him to you. 
You can't experiment on him. You can't scientifically, he doesn't stand to reason as you can't see it and test it and repeat the test and go over it again. So actually, a lot of people then say, well, fine, we just disbelieve him. God can't exist. And in my discussions with teenagers, as part of my job, so many of them argue with me that God can't exist because they just simply can't see him. And then they bring out all kinds of arguments for science disproving God. Now, I don't think any of them are convincing. Um, And when I put it to them that actually, well, gravity can't be seen, as we've said, and the wind can't be seen, they always give an answer back that science has proved it through a series of experiments and and theories and logic and tests and things like that. So I I then kind of try and bring up this idea of the Grand Canyon. Okay, there's evidence for the Grand Canyon because we can see the Grand Canyon. But you can't say how it got there. You can't tell me how the Grand Canyon came into being. Because you can't do an experiment to test a new Grand Canyon because we'd all be dead by the time the Grand Canyon formed, if their theories are right. And you can't understand how that happened. We can guess and we can have theories and we can work it out and I'm quite happy to accept those theories but it's trying to get down to proving the existence of God in a similar way. I start with the Bible, I start with historical evidence, uh, with experience, with theory and testimony to be told that I'm irrational because I'm using Christianity to prove Christianity. I once had a girl come up to me and said, can you prove Christianity without the Bible? And I said, if you can prove science without a science textbook. She said, okay, and she ran off to the library and came back with a science textbook. I thought that was brilliant. Um, It's just the same as proving science with science. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not attacking science. I love science. I I, I think it's brilliant. But there's limitations to it just in the way you describe it, just as the way we describe Christianity. So standing on that premise, we come to the video. A bit of a silly video, and it's actually taken from a road safety campaign, which I cut off at the end because I didn't think it (laughs) didn't really make sense at the end. But I love that line. It's easy to miss something you're not looking for. Um, There was a a video not long ago of uh, um, some people bouncing a ball, and you had to count how many times the ball was bounced, and then they said, did you see the gorilla? And because you're so concentrating on the ball being bounced, this gorilla walks across and off the screen, and you didn't see it. Um, And it's it's actually, that's what we're talking about. You're focused so much on one thing, but actually many people go through life stating that Christianity has no evidence, and it's blind faith, and it's completely irrational, and it's nothing more than a crutch to hold on to while everyone else looks for a rational solution. But I wonder if sometimes we miss what God is doing because actually we're not looking for him. or We miss the effects of what he's doing because we're concentrating on something else. So I want to talk a little bit from the Bible, from that story we looked at earlier, and um, offer some experiences of my own experience, of my own evidence, I suppose, and leave it with you as to whether you believe irrationally or without evidence. Now, if you're here tonight and you've been a Christian for years, that's brilliant, because maybe, hopefully, you can go and use some of this stuff um, with some other people you know and help them to understand why Christianity is not completely irrational. Um, So we see a blind man who is healed by Jesus at the beginning of John chapter 9. Healing in perhaps quite an unconventional way. 
What strikes me, actually, with this story straight away is that he was blind, so he probably wouldn't have realized that someone was about to put saliva-soaked mud in his eyes. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that's okay. Jesus, that's the way he did it, and that was, that was such a great thing. But the healing was witnessed by many people, and some started questioning as to whether it was actually him or whether it's somebody who looked like him, but eventually, he was brought before the Jewish leaders at that time. Now, these guys were the Pharisees. These guys were the, the, the cream of the crop, as they thought. They thought they were the ones who knew the mind of God. They were the ones who were going to uphold the laws that God gave them, no matter what, whether it hurt people or not. God says, we have to do this. You're not doing it. You're wrong. Get out. That's their attitude towards things. Now, people were scared of the Pharisees. We see that a bit later on. And so they bring this man to the Pharisees, and they disputed that he was even blind. They said, go and get his parents. They'll, they'll tell us whether he was blind. And they tried to maybe trap them, as, uh, as, as it, they would have been in, in real trouble to declare the fact that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the one they were expecting. Um, and so they gave that wonderful answer of said, well, he's of age, so he can answer you himself. Um, he's definitely our son, but we're not going to get trapped by you. We're not going to end up down a rabbit hole we can't get out. And so the Pharisees called for the man again. And he was told to agree that Jesus is a sinner. Now, I don't think we quite get the gravity and the weight of the conversation that comes next. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, in verse 25, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they said to him, but what did he do? Now, he's already answered this question, but the way he answers it would have been the most shocking thing you would have heard. I have told you already, and you did not listen. Nobody spoke to the Pharisees like that, and the Pharisees get more and more angry. They get cross with him. He, he, they try and cross-question. They try and trap him. They kind of get him to... They're trying to wear him down to say, actually, look, okay, I don't know how it happened, but he's definitely not who he says he is, and it's okay. We're all okay. And that's what they wanted, to keep the peace and just, look, what's happened here is a bit of a fluke. Okay, what's happened here is we're not quite sure. Let's just keep it under wraps and make sure it's gone down. And besides which, it happened on the Sabbath, which is horrendous. It happened on the holy day, which the law says shouldn't have happened, so maybe we'll get him on that. You see, what happened is I think the Pharisees missed something because they were looking for something else. They were, um, he's here, I didn't know he was going to be here, but my dad always used to say to me, stop clouding the issue with the facts, and I never quite understood what that meant, um, and now I'm older, I realize, and I think that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were clouding the issue with the facts. They were basically trying to, look, something's happened and we're not, we're not happy, so let's try and work out some evidence against it. It's the Sabbath. Well, that shouldn't have happened, so he's a sinner, which then means he must be bad and not of God, and so we can, just, we can discount what happened. I was talking to my father-in-law earlier, who talked to me about uh, positioning theory, which uh, for all the psychologists out there is quite an interesting theory, is that you start with your own point of view and then you build evidence around you to support it. 
So it's the understanding that we all have a position which we take, whether that's cultural, whether that's what we have brought up with, whether that's where we um, live, how we work, uh, or just our own attitude. We all have a place to stand on, and then we say, this is what I believe, now let's pull in the evidence around. But actually, the Pharisees were doing just that here. They missed the evidence because they were so concerned that he was healing on the Sabbath day. He was so concerned that they didn't want any trouble and anything to rock what they thought, that he was pulling in evidence from elsewhere and making that fit their claim. Again, they missed the point later on as they confused Jesus' comment with blindness about physical blindness. What, are we blind too? You've gone mad, I, I can see. But they completely missed the point that Jesus is talking about spiritual blindness. And he's talking about them not understanding the things of God. So what about today? What about the evidence of today? What about the positions that we stand on? What about those moments where we stand uh, and, and we have to give evidence for something? And our own beliefs and our own thinking. What about my evidence for why I believe in Jesus? Why is it not irrational? Well, I believe I have got evidence of God doing something in my life in a similar way to what we've read today. Now, I wasn't born blind, but on the 12th of November last year, uh, I went to play football with my church. And we hadn't played football, I hadn't played football for about 10 years, and got really excited, and my wife was saying to me, don't go, I just get a really bad feeling. And I said, no, no, it'll be absolutely fine. I was so excited about going. I was in my football kit, <laughs> football kit, I got my England 90. England 2002 shirt on, I think that was the, the last time I ever really took an interest in football. Um, so I got that on, oh, it still fit just, and um, I, got, I got my shorts on, I got my shin pads, uh, I hadn't got any shin pads, I was really concerned, but that was okay. And I got my socks on and I was ready to go. And I went and uh, it started at 8 o'clock, brilliant, down at Lighthall School, 8 o'clock, lovely game of Christian football, you know, very, very gentle tackles and uh, running away from the ball. And then um, 20 past eight came, and uh, I ran for a ball along with somebody else who shoulder charged me, tangled up my legs, and I flew up in the air and landed on my shoulder, which is actually still, still tender. Um, and I, I went down, and I, heard, I hit my head on the floor as well, and somebody said, I heard a crack. And I got up, and my shoulder really, really hurt. So I said, I'm just going to go and sit on the side for a minute. So I sat down at the side of the football pitch, and uh, I go to quite a charismatic church, so one of the church elders came running over and said, let's pray for it, let's pray for it. He put his hand on it, and he went, whoa, we're going to A&E. Um, because he could feel my collarbone had disappeared. And, so, and it was really crunchy. So anyway, I went to A&E, found out I'd broken my collarbone in two places. Um, now, if you can imagine, the collarbone looks like this. The x-ray showed that my collarbone was like this. It wasn't sticking through the skin, but it was almost sticking through the skin. So they gave me two options. They said, you can either have surgery or you can wait. And it will take about six to eight weeks to heal. And I thought, that's Christmas out. And I can't drive for all of that. I need to go to a conference in January. OK, fine. I'm not going through surgery, I thought, because um, uh, that just didn't, didn't appeal. So I said, I'll, I'll, I'll let it be, and I'll see what happens. So I got a sling, and I spent a lot of time over the next week in bed and shuffling around the house and being a real inconvenience to people when I couldn't go and do things, cancelled work, took the week off work. Fast forward to the 2nd of December, 
Okay, two weeks, six days later, and I went to church. And I said to the guy who leads our church, I said, I am just fed up now, because I couldn't lead worship, because I, I lead worship at church, so I, I play guitar. I couldn't do that. And I am fed up with this now. And he says, do you know what, Tom? I'm fed up too, because you can't lead worship. You can't do the stuff you've been called to do. So I said, fine. So he said, I'm going to pray. So he literally just put his hand on me, and he said, we just pray for a speeding up of your healing. And that was the end of that. And on we went with the day. Sunday evening, I was in the worst pain possible, and my shoulder was killing me. And I said to God, I audibly almost said to God, we have just prayed about this, and now I'm cross. And I was getting cross. I was getting quite angry with God. This is the 2nd of December. This is three weeks in. I've got another three to six weeks left. Three to five weeks left. Um, that's Sunday night. And I woke up the next morning having taken the strongest cocodamol they could possibly have given me at the, the, uh, the hospital. It's good stuff. But um, I woke up the next morning, and I, was, I, th I, I thought, oh, this is odd. And I kind of got out of bed, and I shuffled up, and I just went, oh, I've got a collarbone back. That's a bit odd. So I said to Kate, I've got a collarbone. And she went, oh, must be healing. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, maybe God did something. Maybe. I got the fracture clinic on the Friday, so I went through the rest of the week, still in a bit of pain, still not quite sure. 7th of December, three weeks, four days later. You can guess what's coming. I went to the doctors. I went to the fracture clinic. I went with my parents to the fracture clinic. They drove me there. They sat down. We sat there for hours, I seem to remember. Um, went to have an x-ray. Came back. Sat down with a consultant. He's an osteo-something-or-other consultant. So he does bones, okay? He sees bones every day. His exact words to me were, I have never seen a collarbone heal that quickly. It has gone from here to here. It's gone back into line. It's not quite in line. It's sitting on top of it, but that's kind of what they expect. Um, we couldn't have done better with surgery. He was amazed at how far the bone had moved and completely agreed with me that the power of prayer had an influence. And he said, take, go, go, well, you can take your sling off now. You're done. Um, you just need to, don't be silly with it. You know. He said, give it another few days, maybe a week before you drive again. But I'm not quite sure what's happened. He said, I don't know what or why, I don't know why or what has happened, but I do know, oh, sorry, no, that's, that's my next bit. He also said, oh, yeah, he also said, I don't entirely sure, I don't entirely know where that bone has come from. You've got a bone that was shattered, which has now come back. He says, and I'm not quite sure where that's come from. So I don't know why or what happened. All I know is that I met a guy in school later on who'd broken his collarbone. He was in his sling for eight weeks. I have, I've, I've still got physio to help the muscles rebuild, but I have a completely functioning collarbone, and I shouldn't really have had one. He said, I would have expected you to come back and your bone to have been here, but it was here. I said, but I was in so much pain Sunday night after they prayed. And the guy was like, I'm not surprised because your bone moved about two or three inches in a night, which is painful. And I said, okay, fine. So I've had a really interesting reaction to this, okay? I go, I've now been telling people at school, it's quite obvious when you're not in your sling and they think you should be. Uh, some are really open to the idea. Okay, that's great. Some of the RE teachers that I speak to are like, yeah, okay, I don't really believe it, but, you know, I can understand. Others just look stunned and think I'm mad. Um, some instantly try to reject it due to the fact that it being some scientific fluke, you know, even though that consultant said he's never seen it happen before. I've since seen another consultant who was, who was equally as confused as to why, and he was, he was making me do strength exercises. 
and he was pushing on my collarbone. He said, does it hurt? And I said, well, yes, because you're pushing on a bone, but it doesn't hurt any more than if you're pushing on any other bone. And he kept doing it, because he couldn't believe that it, what, what he was seeing. Uh, I've also had it insinuated that I have completely been blinded by this. I'm completely irrational that God has healed it. And no one's ever given me any other explanation. They've just told me that I'm irrational. So this is where I think the Pharisees have got to in the story in the Bible. They couldn't get past the evidence or the explanation. I don't know why my bone grew that fast or moved that fast. I cannot tell you why. All I can tell you is I believe that God did it. Right back in verse 16, they heard about this healing and they went straight for the Sabbath barrier. It must be wrong because it was on the Sabbath. But look what happens to the man who was healed. At the beginning, they said, who is he? Who is he who's done this? And they said, oh, he's a prophet. The next thing they say is, the next thing he says, well, I don't know whether this man is a sinner or not, but I know that my eyes are now open. And then a bit later on in that, that, that section at the end, verse 35 onwards, Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, the Son of Man, 81 times Jesus calls himself this in the Gospel, and he's never used by anybody else. No one else ever uses this. It comes from Daniel. And Daniel prophesied the Son of Man from the Old Testament as a heavenly figure who in the times before the end will have authority, glory, and complete power given by God. So the man who was blind would have heard about this Son of Man who they were waiting for. And Jesus says, have you seen him? Do you know who he is? No, but tell me, I I, want to meet him. And Jesus replies, well, you're speaking to him. I'm me. And the man believes and he worships and instantly recognizes Jesus as the one who fulfills these prophetic visions. He has the evidence, but do you know what? It was still a question of faith as to whether to believe or not. Jesus came with power and authority from God to sort out the shame, the oppression, and the sorrow caused by sin. Sin, the biblical word for our human response to not do what God wants us to do. Uh, at school, I use a brilliant analogy of, well, I think it's brilliant, uh, of sin. So the S is shove off God, uh, I is I'm in charge, and N is no help needed. Shove off God, I'm in charge, no help needed. That's sin. That's what it is. It's basically, I don't need you, God. I could do this myself, because actually, I, you know, whatever you say is the right way, well, forget it. I'm going to go my way. I'm in charge. God can't be near sin. We've rejected him, because God, but, but God came to earth in the person of Jesus, paid that price for separation on the cross, the price of death for us in order that we can have that relationship back with God again, and access the creator, the all-loving, ever-loving, overwhelming loving God who loves us because he loves us because he loves us. And the Pharisees miss this evidence and they got confused by what Jesus meant. They're still hanging on to their viewpoint. They're still hanging on to it, but the blind man gets it. Yes, you're the son of man. You're the one. I don't care whether it's the Sabbath. I've got it. I know who you are. The evidence led to him having to make a step of faith to go, now I see. So this leaves us now with the ultimate question for this evening. What happens next? I believe that there is evidence for God, 
in the existence of God. There's biblical evidence. If that's not enough for you, that's fine. There's historical evidence. If that's not enough for you, you can have a look at that next week on the video. Um, if you don't believe anything history says, well, then that's fine. Uh, then there's always personal evidence, happenings today. This morning at church, a lady stood up and she said, I, uh, I came to a conference that we had not long ago, um, and my blood sugars were through the roof, I had diabetes, and now I've had the... And basically they were saying, I'm about to hit the next level of diabetes. And this morning she said, look, I've had an entire week after someone prayed for me, and my blood sugars are back to normal. And I just feel like I'm not, you know, I feel like God has done something and I'm feeling like things are, are moving. Could be a fluke. I don't think it is. I think it's the fact that God has done something. But you see, I think, I don't always understand why God does that for some and not for others. Why that would do, God would do that for that lady, but we've got a friend who's still struggling with diabetes and we're still praying for her. But it doesn't mean that I then disbelieve God and say, well, for I'm, you know, there's some evidence over there, but there's not here, so I'm going to take the, the, the not evidence. And if you feel this evening that actually the evidence of God's power and authority through Jesus is not irrational, or that there is some evidence, then there's still a step of faith to take. You can't just say, well, that's enough for evidence. You need to say, but actually I then believe that God is who he says he is. And we can either look for what God is doing and be open to the prospect that it's him, like the man who was healed in John. We can reject him totally and say, I can't see any possibility because it offends me or because it's just wrong, like the Pharisees. But I don't think, well, one thing I don't think we can do is ignore it and hope it will go away. C.S. Lewis says that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's either yes no, you can't have a, well, it might be. That's the stark choice I believe we've got today. Last thing is Romans, verse 8, 31. Paul, who writes in the book of Romans, says this, in view of all of that he's just said about who God is, what can we say? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Certainly not God, who did not even keep back his own son, but offered him for us. He gave him that he would also, uh, he, he gave him so will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen people? God himself declares them not guilty. It says, In all things we have complete victory through him who loved us, for I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love. There is nothing in creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's biblical evidence. Historical evidence, we could tell you that. And then there's experience evidence. To say Christianity is irrelevant, to say Christianity is false, to say that Christians believe without evidence, I just cannot comprehend that. And I'm quite happy to tell more stories, not now, but more stories of, of stories that I've heard of God doing amazing things in people's lives and turning their lives around. And so we're going to sing um, in a minute. And then at the end, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to do something quite bold. I'm going to pray that God would do something this evening in some people's lives.
So I'm just going to pray that God would... I'm not going to do anything weird or anything wacky or wonderful. I'm just going to pray that God would do something in some people's lives through illness, through anything, through, through, through things where actually we can see some evidence of what God has done. Because I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. No power of darkness. We're going to sing that, actually. Don't we? That's a bit funny. Um, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm doing it now. Um, we're going to sing that song in a minute. But actually, I truly believe that. That actually, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter how I present. What God does, God does. And what God does, he does because he is good.